says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Father, we just pause now and ask that <clears throat> by your spirit you would just help us to be able to hear the voice of the living God speak to each one of us as we open this portion of your scripture this morning. Lord, every intent behind why you recorded this portion of your word, we pray your spirit would prepare us and communicate to us what it is you would want to say to us in our lives in this day and hour. So please speak to us now by your spirit's ministry, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes it may appear from the circumstances in our lives that things are kind of slipping completely out of control. Sometimes we look at a situation that's at hand or the circumstances, and from what we can see, it looks like everything is going really wrong. It looks like things are falling apart. In those moments, despite what it may appear and despite how hard it really is sometimes to believe when it looks like everything is going out of control, the reality is those unfortunate events sometimes may just be part of God's divine plan. And it could very well be, as we see later on down the road, that the unpleasant circumstances are actually leading to the ultimate will of God, which he's unfolding in the situation that may be at hand. And such really is the case here in our text this morning, as Jesus is being betrayed, as he's being wrongly arrested as a guiltless man who's done nothing wrong, that very thing is unfolding here. Despite how bad it may have appeared, Jesus was in complete control in this entire situation, as he always is in every situation. Remember, as we look at these things and in the chapters ahead, Jesus is not a victim of bad circumstances. 
That's not what's happening here. It's not as if somehow things had slipped out of control or were happening outside of his control. In fact, the opposite was true. Jesus was in total control. He was allowing and orchestrating the very circumstances that were happening and even using the sinful acts of man to ultimately be something he would yield to to fulfill the purposes of God. Remember back in John chapter 10, Jesus said these words. Let me remind you. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. The idea is voluntarily. And then Jesus went on to say, I have power or authority to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again because this command I've received from my father. And that's what we see happening here. Jesus in meekness is now submitting himself to the will of God, even to the sinful activities of man out of faithfulness to fulfill the purposes of God. The background of where we're heading into this morning in the last few chapters of John's gospel, remember, Jesus has just shared his final Passover meal together with the disciples in the upper room. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, has already left at this point to go work out his plan to betray Jesus, as we see starting to happen this morning. Jesus then gave an extended teaching, which we looked at in the last few chapters, where with the remaining 11 disciples, Judas having been gone, he taught them incredible spiritual truths about the Holy Spirit and the love of God and the return of Christ and some incredible things. And then Jesus prayed, which we saw last week in chapter 17. He prayed for himself. He prayed for the disciples. He even prayed for you and I at the end of the chapter, as we saw. And one of the statements he said in his prayer, knowing what's about to come upon him in his betrayal and his suffering and his crucifixion and death, Jesus prayed this from last week's study. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. And this now becomes the beginning of the answer to that prayer. Look with me back in verse 1 as we go through this. It says, And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron. So Jesus is now leaving the city. He's heading over to the area which we refer to as the Mount of Olives situated on the eastern side of the Temple Mount there. And it says in order to do that, it says in verse 1 here, Jesus crossed over the brook Kidron. And that would be a reference to what we call the Kidron Valley, which is situated between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount or the Temple area. And Jesus is now crossing over that area. It says it's the brook Kidron because in the winter months with the rain and the melt, uh, typically the, the brook would run a little more full and there would be water flowing through this Kidron Valley at this time. Historians tell us that during the Passover celebration, which is what time we're at, that upwards to a few hundred thousand lambs would be sacrificed there upon the altar in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount during this time. Now, let me just say a few hundred thousand lambs, that's a lot of blood. And you have to figure out what to do with a lot of blood. And they created a stone receptacle to collect that blood that was shed from the altar. And then that blood then ran in a conduit underneath the Temple Mount area and then ultimately drained into the Kidron Valley, into the Brook Kidron to try and wash some of that blood away. Now, that makes what we read here very interesting where it says that Jesus, <clears throat> with his disciples, cross over that brook Kidron. 
which tells us that as Jesus does this with his disciples, imagine this flowing brook mingled with blood from all those sacrifices and Jesus now stepping over this and he's stepping over this bloody brook. No doubt he's thinking about how he now is going to become the fulfillment of that Passover feast as he now would become the ultimate Passover lamb the one who the Bible says would be the Lamb of God who would take away once for all the sin of the world. See, the blood of animal sacrifices for a time, they could temporarily cover man's sin. They were a symbol, a picture of what Christ would ultimately accomplish when he, with his holy, precious blood, would shed his blood in death as the ultimate sacrificial Lamb of God to not just cover sin, but to remove sin to completely take it away and eradicate it, eradicate it from us. And no doubt as Jesus is crossing over, stepping over this bloody brook with his disciples, these thoughts have to be in his mind as he knows the hours ahead. Hebrews 9 says, Jesus appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The 10th chapter of Hebrews then goes on to say this, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. But we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That's why 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 tells us it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. See, this morning, if your trust is in Jesus Christ and his finished work upon the cross when he shed his blood for the sin of the world, then the reality is it's not just that God's kind of like thrown a sheet over all your sin and guilt and mistakes and all the things you did that you have regret and remorse over that makes you feel kind of like you got stains and things in your closet that if anybody truly knew the real you, the reality is the Bible teaches that Jesus' blood doesn't just cover our sin. It removes it. It eradicates it. It cleanses it from our lives. It purges completely from us that sin that was there removing it from us. But yet what a horrible, painful experience Jesus had to go through as we see in these chapters ahead to accomplish that. So as they now head over to the Mount of Olives, look with me as verse 1 goes on. They cross over the brook Kidron and it says, as they do that, <clears throat> there was a garden there on the Mount of Olives, which he and the disciples entered. And Judas, who had betrayed him, or would betray him, excuse me, knew the place. For Jesus, it tells us, often met there at that garden with his disciples. So Jesus now goes to what seems to be kind of like a favorite spot of the Lord that was situated there on the Mount of Olives. It says here in our text that he entered a garden and that Jesus, the Holy Spirit tells us, often met there with his disciples. Now, the other accounts tell us that this garden was named Gethsemane, which is a term that means olive press. And there on the Mount of Olives, where this garden Gethsemane was, there were several olive farms and there was a press there where they would then press the olives, which was basically a process where they would crush the olives under intense pressure to extract the precious oil within so that it could be used for purposes. And it's here in this garden of Gethsemane where this olive press was 
that Luke 21 and 22 tell us that Jesus was accustomed to go to this place. This just seemed to be, if you would, a place that Jesus enjoyed to go to. This particular garden kind of became Jesus's special spot. It was his spot, a place that he liked to go to. Apparently, it was his habit, his routine to go to this spot for times of solitude, to just have an, an, an oasis and an occasion to get away from everything, a place where he could just have some quiet time for solitude and refreshment, probably a quiet spot in the garden where he could spend time with his father and pray, where he could talk to his disciples. And I look at this and I think, what a great pattern I think we all can learn from Jesus here. That we would perhaps all, because we all need one, maybe find our special place. Our spot where we are able, because we all need to, go to a location where we can just get away from the busyness and get away from people and just have that spot, wherever it may be, that we find that we enjoy, where we can just have a place where it's quiet, to have a little time of solitude and refreshment and renewal for our soul, that spot where we just can get alone with God and we can spend some time with the Lord just like Jesus here emulated such a beautiful way. Now, though John's gospel does not record it, we know that this spot in that garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus this night, though it's not recorded by John, the other gospels record, it was here now that he spends time prior to the events we're going to read next agonizing in prayer in his humanity wrestling it through with his father as he is under the weight and the heavy listen crushing pressure of knowing that the sin of the whole world is going to be placed upon him as he becomes a sacrificial lamb for sin and you have to just ponder for a moment jesus was sinless he is the Son of God. He knows nothing of evil or sin. And imagine just your sin being put upon Jesus. And now add to that the sin of the whole world. For all of human history, every vile, filthy, selfish, evil, disgusting, rude, mean, cruel, murderous, horrible thing all being put upon Jesus. The shock to his system to have all of that come upon him so that then the wrath of God who is just must also then be fired down upon the sin of the world and him knowing that this is what he's about to embrace and what he has to endure to become that sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. We read uh, in the other accounts about this. In fact, I just for sake of refreshment want to just read to you Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, they give us the combination of the events that took place in the garden prior to Jesus' arrest. Please just listen. Let me read it to you. This is what was happening prior to the actual arrest that we read about in John's gospel. It says, when he came to this place, that is the garden, he said to the disciples, pray that you may not enter temptation. And then he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Interesting. The only time Jesus ever asked his disciples to do anything for him. He just said, this is so overwhelming. Would you just stay with me? He didn't want him to give explanation. He just wanted him to stay there with him. Just the, the presence of company. And then it says he went a little farther and he fell down to the ground 
and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away, from me unless I drink it your will be done in other words Jesus was saying father if there's any other possible way that humanity could be saved than me drinking the cup of the sin of the world and the wrath of God then again in this humanity father if there's any other way but recognizing there's not then father let your will be done and the angel appeared it says from heaven strengthening him and being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Hematidrosis, a condition where the capillaries actually under such stress break in the forehead and mingle with the sweat glands as he's under such duress. And it says when he rose up from prayer, came to his disciples, listen, he found them sleeping. And he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus now fully surrenders over to the will of God and what he knew he had come to do, though it was hard in his humanity. So verse 3 tells us, Then Judas, who betrayed him, knew that place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Take notice, as Jesus is now going to betray Jesus, Judas had the privilege of being with Jesus for three years, experiencing the goodness of the Lord in his life. And look what is now happening in our text. Judas now uses what he knows about Jesus to his advantage, actually to take advantage and abuse the Lord. He's using what he knows about the Lord to actually be something to take advantage of the Lord. He was familiar. It was Jesus's custom to go to this spot. So he uses what he knows about Jesus to orchestrate this betrayal this night by setting up sort of a nighttime raid to come and find Jesus where he would be so that they could take him into custody as a prisoner. Now, before we get too upset with Judas, let's be honest, it saddens me whether I look at my life or think of the lives of others of how oftentimes we, much like Judas, betray the Lord in our own lives. And sadly, sometimes, just like Judas, we use things that we know about the Lord to actually take advantage of the Lord and hurt him in similar ways. We say, well, how do we do that? Well, let me give you the most simple explanation. We know Jesus forgives. And we know Jesus is patient. And he's merciful. And he's kind. And so sometimes we use the realization and what we know about the Lord that he forgives and he's merciful and patient and kind. And we use what we know about the Lord to take advantage of the Lord and hurt the Lord by pursuing and indulging some sin because we know, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness afterwards. So I'm just going to be selfish here. Or I'm going to live in a lifestyle that's contradictory to the will of the Lord. And I'm going to take advantage of Jesus' grace because he's, he's forgiving, he's gracious. And the Bible says all I have to do is confess my you know, sins and he's faithful and just and he'll forgive me. So I'm going to just be selfish and sin against Jesus because I'll just ask him to forgive me afterwards. And, and we, like Judas, at times can be guilty of sadly 
betraying the Lord and how sad that we at times find ourselves in these same areas of weakness in our lives. Well, verse 3 says, Judas, having received a detachment of troops now and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there to that garden that night, it says, with lanterns and torches, notice, and weapons. So Judas comes to betray Jesus and he brings quite a large show of military and uh, a police force here, further revealing really how little he did know about Jesus. It says here in the text in verse 3, you see it says he came with a detachment of troops. The language there literally is a reference to what would be about a few hundred Roman troops. And if you know anything about the Roman army, I mean, they were an intense, fierce group of individuals as military men. It also says that not only did he have a few hundred troops, a detachment, but he also had officers given from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, that's a reference to the Jewish temple police guard. And they had temple police officers who were sort of armed security guards in the temple precincts. So here's what you have. You have a, a few hundred armed soldiers and, and armed police or security guards coming now with lamps and weapons loaded down to bear to arrest Jesus like he's some sort of notorious criminal or some out-of-control murderous terrorist who's armed and dangerous. So they bring hundreds of men with all these weapons as if Jesus is going to put up a major fight and resist in this situation here and look what happens verse 4 it says Jesus therefore knowing all things it says will come upon him went forward now I want to say in regards to the beginning of verse 4 there Jesus knowing all things that would come upon him went forward he went forward to me when I look at that I think man talk about a beautiful example of confident and courageous obedience to engage the will of God, to embrace God's will, knowing everything that would come upon him, which was going to be, listen, extremely difficult. It was going to be extremely difficult. Being God, Jesus had full awareness of all the mistreatment that was coming, every punch that he would be struck with, every pain as his beard was ripped out and a crown of thorns were pounded into his skull and the flogging and scourging that he would endure and the mockery and the humiliation Jesus knew all that was coming upon him in the flesh the difficulty the heartbreak the physical pain he would endure and the level of sacrifice it would require of him in order to fulfill the will of God and save us. And yet it says, Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. You should underline those two words. He went forward. He walked directly into it. Talk about courage, love, faithfulness. This is why Jesus is my hero. You can have your own superhero, your favorite WWF wrestler or professional player or MMA fighter. This is why Jesus is my hero. This is my hero. Somebody that will be willing to do that. Talk about courage. Talk about giving yourself voluntarily, surrendering to God's plan. He walked forward to embrace whatever it would require to follow the will of God. Let me say that again. He walked forward to embrace whatever it was going to take 
to fulfill the will of God. And as Jesus' followers, though it is very hard sometimes, we're sometimes called to do the same thing. Sometimes in our lives, we may need to deny ourselves and lay down our will sacrificially to walk forward into a very hard situation and to do things that are very hard because that is what's necessary to fulfill the will of the Lord and to say, Lord, not my will, your will be done here. And sometimes in order to fulfill the will of God and to do what's best for others, because that's what Jesus is doing here. He's doing what's best for others. And he's saying, Father, I'm willing to deny myself and everything within my humanity to do what's best for others in this situation. And sometimes God calls us to that same painful choice. And we have to as well, by faith, be willing to perhaps walk forward into something. And perhaps today, maybe Jesus is calling you towards something that is very overwhelming. And maybe it's a very hard course. And maybe what it would require for you to follow the will of God is going to be very difficult. The question is, will you walk forward in faith? Will you choose by faith that the Lord can give you the grace to submit to the will of God, though it may not be easy? And instead to walk forward like Jesus here and listen, you say, why well, I can't. Well, that's okay. The Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the same Jesus that did this, if you're a Christian, that spirit of Christ lives inside of you and he will help you to do that. I love 1 Thessalonians 5.24. It says, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So Jesus walks forward and then addresses them, saying to them, verse 4, Who are you seeking? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. And when he said to them, I am he, notice, they drew back, it says, and they fell to the ground. So Jesus now walks forward to address them. And despite, again, how it looks initially, in a matter of a few moments here, we see it was pretty obvious who was in total control in this situation. Jesus made it very evident who was truly in control. They say, who are you seeking? Uh, they, Jesus asked, they said, well, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And he then answers, notice verse 5, he answers, I am he. Now, I want you to take notice there, and it should be, in verse 5, the word he after I am is in italics, which indicates that that is a word that's not in the Greek manuscript, but was inserted by the translators. And at times you'll see this where a word is in italics in a translation to indicate it's not in the manuscript being used, but it's a word inserted by the translators to try and give a little better sense in the reader's understanding of what was being conveyed. Now, let me just say in this instance, that doesn't really help. In this instance, the word he after I am in some ways kind of interferes what Jesus was truly saying when they said, who are you seeking? Jesus said, who are you seeking? He, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered more literally, I am. I am. The Greek there is ego am I. I am. It's the same Greek term and phrase that's used in the Septuagint version, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament scripture, where in Exodus chapter 3, when God was speaking to Moses, and Moses said, who do I tell the people has sent me? And God says to him, 
Tell them I am. I am who I am. Tell them the great I am has sent you. And, and here, Jesus now, as he answers in this moment, uses that exact same statement as he answers them to identify himself, what? As Yahweh God in the flesh. So Jesus here again is proclaiming his divinity once again. They say, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, do you know who Jesus of Nazareth is? I am. He's the I am. He's Jehovah, Yahweh God in the flesh. Here speaking as God in response to those who've come to arrest him. And in this moment, you notice from the reading here, it's almost as if Jesus, when he makes those two statements, those two words, it's like he pulls back just a little bit, and I emphasize a little bit, of the restraint that he's been using while living as a man of his divine authority and all his power as the Lord of all. Because look, when he answers two words, what happens, verse 6? When he said to them, I am, they drew back and they all fell to the ground. Now, who drew back and fell to the ground? As Jesus spoke just these two words identifying himself, the force and the impact of Jesus' authority knocks over hundreds of strong, trained, armed soldiers like they're a bunch of little toddlers. And they all go falling back to the ground. I, I can't help, I, I do think of these kind of, I wonder, I mean, what did that scene look like? I mean, they got lanterns and stuff, you know, were they falling over? Ah, you know, they're all getting burned as they're falling over the ground and their, you know, oil lamps are breaking and people are catching on fire and they're trying to put each other out and stuff like that. And I mean, or again, as he knocks them over to the ground, what were they thinking as they were getting back up? What, what hit us? Or uh, what happened there? I have no idea. Last thing I heard was I am and now I'm on the ground. I just, I mean, what was the experience for these men Quite, quite shocked, I'm sure, when this happened. And I think this scene depicts certainly two things. One, what we would call the meekness of our Lord. The meekness of our Lord, because meekness is not weakness. The word meekness is simply a word that means power or authority under control. It's what a, a horse that was a wild horse has been broken is. That horse's strength and authority has not left it. It's just now meek. Its, its authority is now tamed. It's under control. And the Bible says that one of the things Jesus said about himself is, I am meek and lowly of heart, indicating that Jesus had all the authority and the power of heaven, which at times we see him exercise in his miracles. Think of the things we see Jesus do in the Gospels. Remember the power and the authority that was coursing through the life of Jesus, but yet he lived in a humble way as a man. He lived in meekness. He possessed great strength, but he never abused his strength. He had incredible power and authority, but he never threw his weight around. He never felt the need to have to you know, push people around or intimidate. But let me say this. We should always, always, always remember who this meek and mild Jesus is. This is the ruler of the world. This is the king of kings. And the one who at times, who we, as I said earlier, in our little betrayals, maybe rather irreverently just kind of trample on his grace and trifle with, oh, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Do you realize? He's gracious. But do you realize who this is? This is the son of God. This is the ruler, the Lord of all creation. He's keeping your heart breathing while you're betraying him. 
He's keeping your lungs working as I'm selfishly doing something, abusing his grave. This is Jesus. And the meekness here of Jesus is demonstrated as he just pulls it back for just a measure. And all these troops go falling over the ground with just two words. It also depicts to me as well the power of the voice of the Lord. In two words. He says two words and the power of his voice humbles these men who sought to resist him. And can I say the voice of the Lord can be an incredibly strong thing in its impact upon people. I love Psalm 29. It's a psalm about the voice of the Lord. And there it says, the voice of the Lord is powerful, powerful. And boy, this is so true. I have experienced this in my life. I've seen it happen in other people's lives where the voice of the Lord can totally humble a man, can totally humble a person, can just overcome someone's resistance. At times he can call people into commitment where they're willing to to lay aside everything. Just they hear the voice of the Lord and when they finally hear the voice of the Lord, it's a radical turnaround because they heard the voice of the Lord. So often I love how Jesus would just walk around and on occasion, he also would just use two words to sometimes call people to commitment. He wouldn't give this big, long gospel presentation. Some of us were more eloquent than Jesus is. He would just look at somebody and say, follow me. And with such power, such authority, the power of the voice of the Lord was so strong, he would speak into the heart of a man. And at times he would say, follow me. And it says people would get up, leave everything and follow him. They leave their business, their money, their family. They would just leave everything. And they would follow Jesus because the power of the voice of the Lord. Boy, something for us to pray about. May we pray, Lord, may the power of your voice be heard in the lives of people because that has radical, radical effect, as you can see in this text here. So they fall down. They're probably trying to get their bearings, verse 7. And he asked them again, watch this. Whom are you seeking? And they said, I assume somewhat sheepishly, uh, Jesus uh, of, of Nazareth. I wonder if there's quite a, a diminishing now of their bravado or their arrogance, maybe a little hesitation as he asks the same question again. And they say, oh, it's, uh, we're seeking Jesus, but probably a little more sheepishly. And Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he or I am again. Therefore, if you seek me, he says, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled, which he had prayed last week in John 17, of those whom you've gave me, I have lost none. So Jesus asked the question a second time to validate and clarify, not for himself, but to them, that they're only seeking him. That's why he asked this a second time here. He says, look, if you're just looking for Jesus of Nazareth at your own admission now twice, he says, if I'm the one you're looking for, I've already told you I'm he. I'm the one you're looking for. So if I'm the one you're looking for, and he says, you're seeking me, let these go. You don't need them. There's no need for them to suffer. Let them go free. Again, you notice the heart of Jesus to protect his disciples, to spare those that he loves. He's always looking out for his followers' best interest and willing so beautifully to suffer himself, wanting those he loves to be spared. And he's willing to endure the sacrifice and the suffering himself to alleviate any sacrifice or suffering or hardship from coming on those that he loves. That's just the sacrificial nature of Jesus. We see it here again, giving himself willingly, looking to spare those that he loves from hardship. That's just short of in many ways a foreshadowing even here of what Jesus is on his way to do 
ultimately in the cross as he would die for us and take the punishment of the sin of the world. Why? So that we could go free. Here he says, if you want me, then let these go free. And Jesus is about to suffer on the cross and take the punishment for the sin of the world so that we can go free. So that we can be liberated not to live for ourselves, but to live for him out of gratitude. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, he died for all so that all who live may now live for him out of gratitude and appreciation. And he did this even in fulfillment of what he had prayed, verse 9 says, in that prayer in John 17. Well, verse 10, things get interesting when Peter's around, you know that. So Simon Peter says, having a sword, he drew it back and struck the high priest's servant's ear and cut off his right ear. And that servant's name, John tells us, was Malchus. Now at this moment, Jesus, he just released the disciples. He just gave them a getaway free option. But Peter, notice here, with the love and the fervor he had for the Lord and just his impulsive personality, he kicks it into full gear here at this moment. And at this moment, he exemplifies, again, Peter was a, seemed like a be kind of a guy that was a natural born leader and he kind of is trying to exemplify it again here a little bit. Now remember a few things. As I said earlier when I read, the disciples have just woken up. Remember, Jesus was agonizing in prayer. They fell asleep during the prayer meeting. Make all of you feel better? Jesus had just woken them up. We don't know exactly the timing, but the detachment of troops in Judas come. He has this interaction with them. They fall over. It could kind of be as the, the detachment of soldiers are kind of regathering themselves and picking up their swords and their lanterns. The disciples are still kind of wiping the sand out of their eyes and coming away from the trees they were leaning up against sleeping on. And they now kind of rally around Jesus. And Peter, sensing what's happening, suddenly has a burst of adrenaline. And so he's compelled here to do something because that's what you should do, right? Do something. And he jumps to the occasion, tries to help out the Lord and resist this situation and having a sword as a weapon. It says he took it and he took a swing and he cut off the right ear of one of the servants of the high priest. Now, clearly, Peter was a fisherman and not a soldier or a police officer trained with handling a weapon. And that's why probably in this uh, clumsy attempt to strike, he only gets an ear. He was probably going for a little more than that, I'm certain. Typically, you don't do too well when you have hundreds of troops and one sword and you take off one ear at a time. You're not usually going to win a battle that way. So this probably just shows he wasn't too good with a sword, but he takes a stab at it, if you would. And hours earlier, remember as well, Jesus, before this intense situation, told the disciples, you're all going to, in a sense, abandon me and forsake me. And you remember what Peter's response was? Lord, I mean, come on. I mean, the rep, Matthew, yeah, I mean, I can see him. And John, I mean, he's, you know, he's kind of a little weak and he's young. And, but Peter, remember, his bravado, Peter said, Lord, even if all these guys are made to stumble, I'm ready to go with you both to prison, he said, and to death. Which is probably why here in our scene, Peter, in this tense moment, rises up all the more to Jesus' defense because, one, he's got to save face, and two, I think he sincerely loved the Lord. And he was just trying to do the best. Unfortunately, cutting off one ear of a detachment of hundreds of armed soldiers was not really that impactful. It really didn't accomplish a whole lot, nor, listen, nor was it necessary or was it what Jesus really wanted anyway. It wasn't in tune with the will of God. Now tensions are stirred, right? Now matters are worse. Now all the disciples are at risk to get arrested as well or perhaps put to death. 
And because of, follow this, because of one of Jesus' disciples lacking self-control, as the result of that, someone has just gotten hurt when Jesus never intended them to. Let me say that again. Because of one of Jesus' disciples lacking self-control, someone has gotten hurt and Jesus never intended for that to happen. You know, it's interesting, you read the other accounts, Luke 22 tells us that Jesus actually touched Malchus's ear after it had been cut off and healed him, performed a miracle of healing. Now, can you imagine that scene? Again, I wonder, what did Jesus do? Did he just seal up the hole and make a new ear grow back? That would have been pretty awesome. Or it was dark that he said, hey, somebody look for that ear. Find, find. And you find the, in the ear, the old one, and kind of clean it up and just put the thing back on. Either way, what an incredible miracle. And here's what's even more marvelous about this miracle when Jesus heals this man's ear. It's the last recorded miracle that we have of Jesus' ministry. And what's Jesus' last recorded miracle? It's fixing a mess created by a mistake of one of his disciples. It's Jesus helping someone recover because one of his followers really misrepresented him. Boy, aren't you glad that Jesus is doing that still? Because sometimes as his disciples, we're making messes, we're misrepresenting the Lord, we're inadvertently hurting people, and Jesus is doing miracles of trying to fix people and help them recover because we as his disciples sometimes misrepresent him and make mistakes. I'm sure glad he's like that and gracious in our lives. Well, Jesus at this moment turns to rebuke Peter now because, as I said, this wasn't what he wanted. So he turns, verse 11, and says to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? So the idea, again, is, is stop trying to take matters into your own hands here, Peter. What, what are you doing? You're trying to help the Lord out, but all Peter was doing trying to help the Lord out is what? He was just making things worse. He was just causing greater issues. He's trying to fix and resolve a situation in the efforts of his flesh, not to mention that situation was part of a process of the will of God unfolding. And Peter didn't fully grasp it, but because he got involved and started to work in this way, he actually wasn't helping. Truth be told, he actually was holding back the plan of God because he was trying to fix it in his flesh. And he was trying to take care of the situation. Jesus needed to submit to this betrayal and arrest because this wasn't something they were doing. He says, this is actually part of what my father is doing. This is a part of the plan of God coming together. He says, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And again, that reference to the cup is the reference of experiencing the suffering that he was going to endure as a result of the sin of the world and the suffering and death that he would experience as a result. So what Jesus is saying is, Peter, this is part of a painful experience that I'm, I need to swallow this. And I know that you love me. And I know that you don't want to see me suffer. And I know that this doesn't line up with your reasoning because it doesn't seem logical. And that's why you're resisting it. But Peter, this hardship is part of the will of God. This is the will of the Lord. And Peter, by you doing what you're doing, you're actually not helping. Your actions are actually going to hold back the will of the Lord from coming to pass. So Peter, what he's saying to him is, please stop what you're doing. Stop resisting what the Father is trying to unfold as a part of his ultimate plan. And Peter, just trust me. Take your hands off. Just trust me. 
Let me do what I know is best in this situation. And boy, how often that is a lesson that we're always learning, isn't it? We have to be careful of responding in the flesh to situations. And so often when we do that, what are we doing? We're acting according to our initial feelings. We're reasoning it out according to our own logic. Something happens and we think, well, of course, the way you fix that is you do this. I mean, that's the responsible thing, right? Or, or we have a strong perspective and because of what our perspective is, we jump to our conclusion and we try and handle it according to our perspective. Or we react or we get logical and what's happening at times, we're trying to take control for the Lord and solve problems that arise instead of just letting the Lord deal with his own situations. I have found the Lord fixes problems way better than I do. I would much rather, and I have many times, I tell you ladies and gentlemen, I would much rather just sort of keep my hands off in situations sometimes and just let the Lord work in His timing and in His way and even have people get mad at me. Why aren't you doing something? Don't you know what they're doing? Yeah, I know what they're doing. Why aren't you going to do something? I, I talk to them about it and yeah, now I'm going to pray because they have a free will and, and, and I, I'm not God. I'm just a Christian. And sometimes we would do much better to at times just let the Lord work because when we get involved like Peter sometimes and we start swinging our sword ambitiously, well, a lot of times I found I just make a bloody mess. And people get hurt in the process. And unnecessarily people get wounded and we can even interfere with what the Lord's trying to do. And this is what Peter made a great mistake in doing. Well, verse 12 says the detachment of troops at this point then and the officers, they now arrest Jesus and they bound him and they led him away to Annas first for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. So at this point, Jesus surrenders himself voluntarily. He's taken into custody and the chapters ahead, we'll see, he's going to endure six trials, three religious trials, three civil trials. Interesting, it says here in our text, they arrested Jesus and they bound him as if somehow the ropes we're really going to hold this guy who just knocked them all over in two words. But here's the thing. Jesus was bound, but he wasn't bound outwardly. He was bound inwardly by the love he had for his father and his desire to obey the will of the father and his love that he had for you and I. That's what was, was binding him. He was bound by his love for you, wanting to save you and wanting to do what we benefit from. So he surrenders himself for the welfare of those that he loves and lets himself be bound. And at this point, he says he's first led to Annas for a religious trial before he's led to the son-in-law of Annas, Caiaphas, who was the current reigning high priest. Now, historically, here's what takes place here. In the Old Testament, the high priestly office was a office for life. You were the high priest until you died. But when the Romans took control of the Jewish territory, this position of high priest became more political than spiritual. And they knew the influence of the high priest. And so because of that, the Romans didn't like a concentration of power in one person. So they would periodically, purposely change out the high priest because they were in control because they knew that high priest was a person of great influence. And so they wanted a puppet they could control or they wanted someone who didn't have too much influence. So as a result of that, Annas really was still alive, should have been the high priest. He was appointed in AD 6, but then deposed in AD 15. They then replaced him with five of his sons and then ultimately his son-in-law, Caiaphas, 
who now is reigning as the high priest because he was appointed by Rome. And that's who's on the throne now. Now, the reason why Jesus was probably brought to Annas first here, as we see this, rather than the reigning high priest Caiaphas, is because it's believed that Annas still controlled all the business and the affairs and the financial shenanigans that were going on in the temple. And all of the money that was being made with the money changers and those who were, uh, you know, buying and selling, you know, doves and so forth. And then Anna still controlled the business affairs of the temple. And what did Jesus do twice? He disrupted all the money making machine of the temple precincts. So Annas doesn't like Jesus. So he's brought to Annas first. We'll see next time and interrogated by Annas because of that. But verse 14 closes with this, notice, and it kind of ties together what we're talking about. It says, Caiaphas was the one as reigning high priest who had advised the Jews in the past that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, the Holy Spirit here points out something neat to us. He reminds us of words that Caiaphas stated back in John chapter 11, where there, Caiaphas, in a cynical remark about Jesus having no value whatsoever as a person, said this, he said, do you not consider it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish? So Caiaphas, back in chapter 11, making a, a cynical remark about Jesus, that this man has no value, and basically was trying to throw him under the bus saying, look, let the Romans kill that one guy, Jesus of Nazareth, rather than them coming after our whole nation. And what he didn't realize is because God controls everything, the Spirit of God used his words of criticism towards Jesus and actually uses a prophecy to prophesy of exactly what Jesus was going to do. He would die as one man to spare and deliver the destruction of all other people. Just another reminder, may I say, that despite how it looks, the Lord's controlling everything. Because he's superintending and orchestrating all things to his ultimate purposes in the end. Ephesians 1 says God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So listen, let people say what they will. Let people say what they will. Mean, nasty, defiant, let people say what they will. The Bible says God can take the wrath of man and make it praise him in the end. Let people do what they will. The Lord will ultimately work things according to his purposes. Amen? Let's pray.